0: following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Toward the end of Matthew's Gospel, we'll get there in a couple of years probably, In chapter 26, verse 41, our Lord observes the inability of his disciples to stay awake and alert through the night as he prays. His words, which he utters as he makes this observation, have passed into the English language as a familiar phrase, as a common idiom. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Boys and girls, you may hear your dad say that one day as he gets older and the gray hairs set in. If we wanted to update the saying, we might say, I would if I could, but I can't. When was the last time you said something like that to your wife or maybe your husband or even to your children? Uh, Consider this. Hey, Nathan, you want to go for a round of golf this Thursday? Oh, no, Zach, I would if I could, but I can't. Or... um, Honey, would you please take out the trash? Well, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, my dear. And guys, we probably don't get away with that one if the wife asks us to take out the trash. Um, So though our Savior was making a profound observation, a profound statement about the spiritual and physical frailties of uh, his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion, we tend to use this phrase today as... A cute saying that really demonstrates or expresses either a lack of desire or a lack of resolve, a lack of will to do something that's been asked of us. In so many words, and on so many occasions that I'm sure you can think of, uh, we say, I can't do that, when what we really mean is, I'm not going to do that, or I don't want to do that. When you get on your knees and you pray, and you ask God for those things which He has told us to bring to Him as petitions, when you ask for daily bread or assurance of pardoning grace in Christ or even for help against temptation in the day-to-day, can you imagine God saying, I would if I could, but I can't? I hope you can't imagine that. A properly biblical view of God, a properly scriptural understanding of who he is in relation to us, rules out the possibility of his ever saying, I would if I could, but I can't. And so if you've ever thought of God as disinterested or as unable to respond to your prayers for help, for aid, for salvation in the Christian life, then you must heed the message of Psalm 121 because it is the psalm that shows us God's resolve. In Psalm 121, we are given a description of God and of His personal interest in you who have responded by His Spirit to His divine call, His divine summons to come before Him. Psalm 121 makes known to us our God, our covenant-keeping God who is resolved who is determined, who is covenantally committed to meet with you. If you have been summoned this day into his presence, and you surely have, then he will in no wise cast you out. He will in no wise cast out any who come to him, as it says in John chapter 6. And Psalm 121 beautifully illustrates this reality to us in this song of ascents. If you look at your Bibles with me, Notice the, the subtitle there, what's called a superscription. If you're open to Psalm 121 and the other Psalms right around it, you'll notice that they're subtitled A Song of Ascents. We have 15 of these different Psalms, these songs that ancient Israelite pilgrims would have sung as they made their way to Jerusalem to observe one of the three annual fasts or feasts, I'm sorry, which God had commanded them to make under the old covenant ceremonial law, which has actually been fulfilled in Christ, and so we don't keep these feasts any longer. However, these songs that are given to us in Book 5 of the Psalter, these psalms are for us to, to meditate upon and even to sing, as we did tonight, as we come into his worship on that weekly feast day, which he has appointed for us, the Lord's Day. Sunday by Sunday, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, coming into his presence. Psalm 121 is the second in the set. And as such, you'll note that it describes the dangers that pilgrims would have faced as they made their way to the holy city. And it puts these difficulties that they faced, and really the difficulties we face, right next to a description of God who keeps our souls who would have delivered them and us through the difficulties. So what a fitting song to sing together as we make our pilgrimage through this life, as we embark upon a treacherous journey, if you will. Yes, you must recognize the dangers. You mustn't bury your head in the sand like a fool but you don't dwell on the difficulties. You you can't fixate on them. You must not obsess over the obstacles that you will meet with along the way. Instead, what shall you do? You shall sing of your Savior. Sing of your Savior along the way and what he will do and is doing to keep you. So this psalm instructs us that in all life's circumstances, God is able And resolute to bring you to himself through Christ. In all life's circumstances, God is able and resolute, resolved to bring you to himself through Christ. So we'll consider this direction for our pilgrimage, this encouragement that God gives us in Psalm 121 under two headings as we divide the psalm neatly into two equal sections of four verses apiece. In verses 1 through 4, we'll consider that God is able to bring you to himself. And then in verses 5 through 8, we'll consider that God is resolved to bring you to himself. God is able, God is resolved to do what? To bring you to himself through Christ. As you read the first half of Psalm 121, you're uh, presented initially with a stark reality of the dangers surrounding you in verses 1 and 2, and then with a rather encouraging description of the protection that's available to you in light of those dangers uh, there in verses 3 and 4. The overall message of these first four verses, as I've already said, is that God is able, He is powerful to bring you to Himself and to appreciate just how able He is, just how powerful the Almighty is. God is As a pilgrim's guarantor and guardian, that is, as the keeper of your souls, the psalmist begins with the danger confronting him. Look at verses one and two with me. He says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, think about mountains. This past Thursday morning, I was in Charleston, had breakfast with another minister friend, and he he uh, he edits a series of commentaries. And he said, "I have a book for you." And it was very kind of him. He gave me the latest uh, the latest installment in this series of commentaries on Second Timothy. And uh, I wasn't expecting that. It was a very kind gift uh, of him. And um, I flipped open to the preface, and the author, who lives in Western Europe, describes in the preface to this commentary the majestic view that he enjoys of the Alps on those rare days when the skies between his study window and, uh, and the mountain peaks are clear. Now, I thought I had a nice view out of my study window of the ninth tee box out here, but he had a much nicer view. It's a tough mission field. And and what he's doing in this preface is he's relating the inspiring picture, the grandeur of the mountaintops to the theological richness of the Scriptures. That turning to the Word of God is like stopping to consider the beauty of a mountain range. And that characterization, it's appropriate. Boys and girls, have you ever seen a big mountain? Mount Rainier or Mount Hood or Mount Adams out west or seen pictures of Mount St. Helens or the Rocky Mountains or, or even some of the mountains we have around here are, are rather impressive on the horizon. And, and what do you think when you see them? Generally, we're not filled with dread you no know, mountain phobia or something. Rather, we're struck with wonder. And Scripture does describe mountains in wonderful uh, terms at different points, meditating on Mount Zion and the like. But here in this passage, the psalmist is not struck with wonder. Instead, the rolling topography and steep inclines of the mountains in Israel as you make your way to Jerusalem uh, had a very different association for vulnerable travelers along the road. You see, around the hidden bends and deep in the shadowy caves of the mountains lurked unknown dangers And so these mountains that are mentioned in verse 1, as they came into view, the traveler would consider the great dangers that lie before him, perhaps of bandits or of wild animals or of harsh environmental conditions, water scarcity, the hot sun, you name it. And he would ask, from where shall my help come? Basically, how am I going to get through this? We see this question anticipated in the previous psalm. Look at Psalm 120. If you have your Bible open, look at how it begins. It's the first song of ascents. What they would have sung as they, as they made their way out of the villages, perhaps. In my trouble, I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. You see, the pilgrim would consider the distress of life, the distress of his pilgrimage, his journey, and would cry out in prayer to God. We'll see more pointedly in the second half of Psalm 121 that the journey was full of all kinds of evil by day and by night. It's no joke. But first, before we get there, I have a question for you. When you open your eyes morning by morning to make your pilgrimage through this world, it's a fitting metaphor, isn't it? To make your pilgrims progress through this life, what dangers do you face along the way? What do you consider that lies before you? Now, I doubt that many of you are dealing with mountain lions or with water scarcity or rock slides or bandits or foreign invaders or something, at least not on a regular basis. But what about the more familiar horrors of sin lurking within us in those dark recesses of the heart or perhaps arrayed around us like an imposing mountain range? You know what I'm talking about. Bitterness of heart against those who have wronged you takes root and bears forth rotten fruit that leads to death. Or perhaps the pressure to compromise your Christian convictions in the workplace as all around you, your coworkers are discussing vile things and inviting you into it. Or perhaps even in your employer forcing you to take a stand for some kind of wickedness in our day and age, it's a good month to reflect on that, or perhaps the temptation to indulge in the flesh. We know how weak we are, how prone to sin and stumbling we are, or even the satanic traps of self-centered greed, gluttony, and despair which continually come against us in mass media, in advertising, TV shows, even personal conversations or our own imaginations which run wild with these things. Our enemies are arrayed against us all around, and even within. From where shall our help come? The danger surrounding you, my friends, is so great, it's so potent, it's so formidable, That no less a power than that possessed by the creator of all things, the maker of heaven and earth, is sufficient to help you. That's the psalmist's point here in verse two. This is why he puts this confession of faith right here. After recognizing the dangers, he says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We declare that at the beginning of every worship service, praise God. We need that reminder. If you cannot claim the covenant-keeping God of the Bible by name, the Lord, as your help and as your deliverer, then you are without hope in this world. If our help doesn't come from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, then it doesn't come from anywhere. Nothing else can overcome the overwhelming and insurmountable uh, difficulties which we face on a day-to-day basis. We confess That the Christian faith, what we believe to be true, begins with God the Father, Spirit, Son, one in three, three in one, who made heaven and earth. And the Christian life, what we experience of and in the truth, begins with a full and terrible apprehension of the dangers and destructiveness of sin surrounding us, which then drives us to the triune God for help. The psalm continues with a description of what this God indeed is like. Verses 3 and 4 present a crucially important profile of the creator God who is introduced in verse 2. Look at them with me as they describe the protection available to you. Verse 3, he will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The message here, it's an encouraging one. It's that the protection available to you is God. God who is utterly able to ensure your safe passage, to bring you to himself in response to his summons. Along the way, he will keep you from stumbling, from slipping, from falling into the traps of the devil. Along the way, he will keep you because he is so powerful that once he has a hold of you, nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Now, we call this the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Some put it a bit simplistically, and they even abuse it frequently when they use this. So they call it once saved, always saved. Now, that doesn't give us a license to sin. If, someone says, if you say to someone, why don't you go to church? They say, ah, oh, I'm good with God. Once saved, always saved, right? I signed the card and all that. I don't need to do anything else. That's not what perseverance of the saints is. Rather, if we look at the doctrine as Scripture presents it to us, especially here in Psalm 121, we might call it divine preservation of the believer. The point is that God ensures your safe passage through this life. The psalmist's point is that God is able to protect you, to keep you, to watch over you, to guard you from all manner of spiritual danger and disaster. All too often, we allow ourselves to be enticed by promises of security from lesser things, but nobody else and nothing else can claim the infinite resources of power and watchfulness of our personally interested God and Keeper who neither slumbers nor sleeps, as it says here in verse 4. If you were to survey, the various mythologies of ancient Greece and Rome or the Norsemen or ancient uh, Sumeria or even modern-day Hinduism where you have a whole pantheon of various gods who look a lot like us, except weirder. If you were to survey these various deities, so-called, you would find that none of them have this unique combination of a personal disposition to care for the inhabitants of this world and the ability to maintain eternal and unceasing watchfulness. But Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who became man, taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul in the incarnation, shatters all the false conceptions of God which men have invented down through time and assigned various names thereunto. But here in our own culture, our more materialistic, man-centered American society, we usually don't put our trust in Thor or Shiva or Odin or Zeus or the like. Rather, what do we trust in? Processes, institutions, social movements, political parties, protocols, procedures, our lists that we run, even things that seem to be open 24-7 to us and for our convenience, and, of course, for our business. But these things, they have no covenantal or personal or relational interest in you. They don't care about you at all. They can't. As soon as you stop paying that insurance policy, it will expire. If you don't purchase the extended warranty, your requests for help when the appliance breaks will be left unanswered. If you don't sign up for roadside assistance and you break down on I-85, guess what? You're out of luck. No one's coming to help you. Political powers will disappoint you no matter who's in office. Even institutions such as the visible church decay and fall into apostasy and disappoint us. Ultimately, these things that we've made, rightfully so, for our convenience, for our mutual aid, for, to the glory of God even, will pass away into oblivion. But behold what remains. He who keeps Israel, his covenant people, neither slumbers nor sleeps. That is the protection that is available to you. God is able, he is powerful to ensure your safe passage through this life. God is able to bring you to Himself. That's the point of verses one through four. But if we stopped here at the end of verse four, we would miss the good news that this all powerful creator of heaven and earth, whom we confess, is not only able to bring you to Himself, but He is willing to draw you near to His life giving presence through Christ His Son. Indeed, He is resolved to bring you to Himself. In the second half of Psalm 121, God's committed resolution to bring you into his presence is expressed in two ways for us. In verses five through seven, it's it's expressed in terms of how he is resolved to keep you. And then in verse eight, it's expressed in when he is resolved to keep you, summed up there in one little verse. So look at verses five through seven with me. The Lord, again, the covenant name of God, Yahweh is your keeper, Yahweh is the shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. Yahweh will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. We begin with a summary statement of what's already been said in so many words in verses two through four, namely this, that Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, promise-making, ever-faithful God of Israel, is indeed your God and your Keeper. He is your keeper. This is true for all those who believe in His Word, who trust in His Messiah, who rest in His grace. Is the Lord your keeper? Can you say you are resting in Him, ultimately alone in Him, to keep you through this life? Then you have nothing to fear, he says. Though dangers surround you both day and night, there's nothing in the mountains To fear. This point's already been made, really, in verses one to four. But in that first half of the Psalm, the point is uh, reflecting on the glorious real of this glorious reality in the light of God's power, his ability to do good for those with whom he's entered into covenant. And then here in the second half, the focus shifts a little bit. We're not so much considering his power anymore. That's been established, but now we're reveling. We're enjoying, we're delighting in his unchanging resolve to maintain watch over the flock, to keep his people free from soul-destroying harm. The imagery here is that of a faithful, devoted, and skillful shepherd who navigates the paths and rough terrain of the mountains to keep his sheep out of the harsh or frightening elements that would wreck them. By day, the harsh sun would beat down upon the flock, if it were not for the skill and care, indeed the shade, of the shepherd. And then by night, the pale moonlight would spook the easily disturbed sheep if they were on the move, except for the assuring presence and voice and sound of the shepherd who's prudently directing them, even in the dark. This activity anticipates the earthly ministry of our Lord As we saw in John chapter 10, he is the good shepherd and his continuing ministry as our great high priest is indeed to usher us in to God's life-giving presence. He's continuing to lead us by his spirit through his word. Brothers and sisters, we can say of Jesus Christ what the psalmist says here in verse 7, the Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. In these words, we see that his resolve then, how, how, is his, how is he resolved? His resolve is all-encompassing. He is comprehensively, totally, fully resolved. There is no danger excluded from view. He's no novice shepherd. He knows everything that threatens us, and he will keep you from all evil. He will keep you, indeed, from all kinds of evil. And yet, some of you are thinking this. you faced down, some very difficult things in the last few years. And yet, as we saw in Matthew's gospel, the good shepherd warns us, he warned his disciples, that in this life you will have trouble. Dr. Pipe is way past Job chapter 5, but Eliphaz the Temanite there spoke truly when he pronounced to Job that man is born for trouble, as surely as sparks fly upward." One of the ringing themes of Scripture, particularly of the New Testament, is the inevitability of all kinds of evil. In the Sermon on the Mount, we considered for several weeks the nature and promise of persecution. It's coming. And certainly, we know very well the dangers of temptation, the sorrow and sickness, distress, pain and loss that so frequently attends going through this life. When we are struck down in our bodies or terrorized in our minds or shaken in our very souls, whatever the case may be, as Christians, we know the feeling of pain, of evil within us and around us. So how do we square these two seemingly opposed truths? That you who follow Christ will have trouble in this life and that the Lord will keep you from all evil. The answer is right here in the second half of verse 7. He will keep your soul. The ESV puts it as, he will keep your life. Indeed, the word there in Hebrew literally, most literally means your soul or your spirit, but it frequently stands as as a metonymy, as a representation for all of life. He will keep your entire person. What is your life? Does it consist in skin and bones, flesh and blood, brick and mortar, money and reputation? There's no denying that all of these things are important. In fact, when rightly used, they're all good. God honors them in the Word. He spends a lot of time teaching us how to use these things and how to protect them. But, are these material and social things, the sum and substance, the essence of life? What about the soul? What about spirit and truth? What about worship and praise? What about virtue and integrity? What about a clean conscience, an upright heart, and a humble spirit? What about the kingdom of heaven, the righteousness of God, and the glory of your heavenly Father to which you've been called. Jesus preached to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, there at the end, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing, and then skipping ahead just a little bit? He says, um, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, these these material things and social things that occupy our minds and so much of our attention and Necessarily so, occupy much of our time. They're not the essence of life. It's easy to confuse this. But the essence is the kingdom and righteousness of God to which Christ calls us. Life is much more than material well-being, as useful and as desirable as such well-being may be. But in the economy of God, and this is one of the great mysteries of the Christian life, even poverty and true bone-crushing suffering, and death even is sanctified to our good and to God's glory. This morning, I was humbled, very solemn in the pastoral prayer at Oconee. There were not, not one, not two, but three individuals with dire cancer diagnoses in that congregation for whom we prayed. And I was preparing to preach this sermon. And certainly, We've all faced either medical difficulties, strokes, cancer, heart attacks, you name it, premature babies, things that we've been through. And yet God says, these things I will keep you in the midst of them. I will keep you from all kinds of evil. To put this another way, in in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens these majestic and very familiar, encouraging words. He says, What then shall we say against these things or to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us as our great high priest. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, and then jumping down again. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is resolved to bring you to himself. Nothing can stop him. Nothing will stop him. He will keep your soul. How has he resolved to keep you? In every way. Insofar as doing so glorifies Christ our King and secures our spiritual good. Nowhere is this more clearly seen than in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Christ our Savior. What did Paul write to us? He wrote, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? What glorious and good news to weary pilgrims struggling against sin within, sin around, and the effects of sin, which we feel day by day. And boys and girls, I hope you're listening carefully. If you are here this evening with your parents and you have yet to lay hold of this good news as your personal creed and your hope in your life, then I beseech you, lay down your sinful resistance and follow the good shepherd. Lay hold of that which he's told us. He will keep your life. He will keep your soul. He will bring you all the way home. There's no other sure guide to bring you to heaven, that heaven of eternal rest and life, wherein the fullness of God dwells in glorious and unapproachable light. Think about heaven. Think about eternity. That leads us to the second way in which God's resolve to bring you to himself is expressed here in Psalm 121. Look at verse with me as we consider when he is resolved to keep you. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. When is God resolved to keep you? It's a bit of a trick question, but it's a simple answer. Always, at all times, now and forevermore. Now is depicted here by a common Hebrew idiom that really stands for all times, it's one that Christ uses in John chapter 10 to describe the going out and coming in of sheep into the sheepfold, but it also it relates to everyday life, whether you're a shepherd or not. What do you do in the morning? You go out of your bedroom, and what do you do in the evening? You go back in to your bedroom. You leave the house. You go out at dawn, and then you return at dusk. You come back in. go out and come in. go out and come in. And all along the way, God is with you. The Holy Spirit speaking through the psalmist here perfectly sets this every day, even this somewhat folksy illustration in parallel to the incomprehensible truth this time forth and forevermore. We cannot wrap our minds around that. We can understand going out and coming in. But who can grasp eternity and forever? Think about time for just a second with me. So we look down the annals of history to the past. The history of humanity is, in no small measure, really the story of human coping with the separation from the life-giving presence of God, which God is reversing through Jesus Christ. From Adam's fall to this very day, the whole creation groans under the curse of sin and divine justice. But the future of Christ's redeemed humanity, made new and born again in spiritual union with Him by the Holy Spirit, is promised to us as a state of eternal blessedness in unending life in God's presence. And what do we know about God? He takes no breaks. He never clocks out. He doesn't power down. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. And this eternal wakefulness of God, it's a terror to the reprobate, to those who are perishing. In Revelation, the kings of the earth who are in rebellion against God throw themselves under the mountains to escape His presence, because they know what's coming. But what is it to you and to me, those who have been redeemed, if you're resting in Christ? It is not a terror, but it's an indescribable delight. In fact, we risk everything to make our way into it. We go right through the mountains to get to our God. For we know that the Lord will keep you, will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. This is the song that pilgrims sing as they make their way to him. Is this your song this evening? Were you able to sing it at the beginning of the service? Sincerely, even if you didn't really know the tune or the words uh, were tough to track with, were you able, as you were understanding it, to sing this song as your own song? To the Christian, these songs of a sense here in the book of Psalms, it's not merely a soundtrack. It's not a mixtape or something. Rather, this is a song book. These are lyrics for us making our way through this life. We sing the truth that God is and that he is our God, that he's able to do all that which he intends and that he is resolved to bring us into his presence through Christ Jesus, our good shepherd. We sing that whatever dangers surround us or assail us or come against us, God himself is our keeper and our protector our shepherd and our guide. And if Christ is your Savior, this is your song. You must sing it. But if Christ is not your Savior, if you're not sure that you can trust Him to do what He has promised, if you're concerned that His response to you would be something like, could be something like, I would if I could, but I can't. Or even more terrible, You fear that he would say, you want to come to me? I could do that, but I won't. And you can't sing this song, no matter how desperate your situation is or how obvious the spiritual perils that surround you may be. So what are you to do? Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe. Lay hold of Christ, our great high priest, our good King, He who has made known to us the will of God for our salvation. Open your ears to he who calls you, who is calling you even now to come into his presence through Christ our King. The songs of ascent were sung in response to this summons, to God's call to come into worship. And he's summoning each of you, boys and girls, men and women, tonight to come into his life-giving presence through Christ and through Christ alone. Heed the summons. Heed the call. And as you do so, you must remember that in all life circumstances, God is able and resolved to bring you to himself through Christ. There's no diagnosis. There's no danger. There's no distress that could keep you from coming into his presence if he has called you and lay hold of you. So lay hold on him. Apart from him, there's no way to realize the spiritual good and the assurance Thereof, which God made us to enjoy in his presence, worship, and in his praise. Apart from him, there is no security or assurance, but through him, by his power, by his matchless grace, given to us in his word and applied to us by his spirit, we can proceed from this point in Psalm 121 to what is said in Psalm 123. Look at Psalm 123 if your Bibles are open. How does it begin? To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. The vision of danger and distress in the mountains shall be replaced with the vision glorious of he who is enthroned in the heavens above. Let us pray. O Lord, our God in heaven above, we bless your name. We thank you for your kindness to us, your mercy, your patience, your love in Christ. We thank you that you have indeed demonstrated to us in creation your power and made known to us in your word your love, your resolve, your willingness to draw us savingly to yourself through Christ. And we pray that you would give us the eyes of servants looking to their master, the eyes of handmaidens looking to the hand of their mistress, the eyes of sons and daughters looking to a heavenly Father who loves us. Lord, we pray for Christ's sake that you would take us and consecrate us to your purposes this week. Indeed, we turn ourselves over to you. We dedicate to you this evening a portion of that which we've received for the advancement of your kingdom, for the upbuilding of the church. Indeed, as an expression of worship and thanksgiving to you, O God. And in so doing, we turn ourselves over to you as your set-apart ones, As your church called out from the world, Lord, do with us as you will, for your will is good and your glory is worthy. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cacheville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.